And if you would, please turn in your Bibles to our scripture reading, uh, which is found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, verses 11 to 28. Again, our scripture reading is Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 to 28. And then our sermon passage is the last passage in 2 Samuel. So finally, at long last, uh, after about two years, maybe a little over, uh, we have, we're coming to the end of the books of Samuel. And what we've seen over the course of these books, over the course of many chapters, uh, is, a, is a large emphasis on the king David. About 40 chapters, not quite uh, full 40, but about 40 chapters were, were spent uh, talking about David, uh, giving the history of his life. Uh, even when Saul was king, much of the emphasis of those chapters was on David, who uh, was the true king. Uh, of Israel. And so our sermon passage is 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 18 to 25. We're not done yet with David. Uh, my plan is to uh, go uh, through the first two chapters of 1 Kings, uh, which uh, detail the last uh, period of David's life up to his death. And then from there we'll move on, uh, Lord willing, to a book in the New Testament. Uh, but what you'll see is this passage today, it brings, it brings uh, the books of Samuel to a nice close. Uh, it, it closes them out in some ways. It closes them out on a high note, uh, whereas the, the, the events that precede David's death it gets a little strange there. If you've read 1 Kings 1 and 2, you'll see that it's a little unusual. It's not where the author of uh, Samuel wanted to leave things. And ultimately, the author of Scripture, of all Scripture, including First and Second Samuel, is the Lord. And so he chose to, to take David out on a high note in his life rather than a lower note. And he leaves that uh, with those who read it. So 2 Samuel 24, 18 to 25, that's our sermon passage. But first we'll uh, read Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 to 28. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word. This is God speaking to you. Please give your full attention to him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah." And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who, were for, who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a, of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. 
Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost of those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now turning to our sermon passage, 2 Samuel 24, beginning at verse 8, reading through the end of the chapter. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, as the Lord commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar, altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Our gracious and most holy God, we are thankful to you, dear Lord, for your word. We're thankful, Lord, that we read it, that we feast on it, that we drink it in. Your word is life. And we are thankful, Lord, that we have it. We're grateful that we can hold it in our hands. We're thankful that we can read it uh, privately. We are grateful, dear Lord, that we can read it publicly and have it read to us. Lord, we pray for your spirit to teach us from that which he wrote. We pray that he, as the author of all scripture, would guide us into all understanding. But we recognize that there are passages and even parts of this passage that are difficult for us to understand. So we pray that your spirit would illumine our minds, that he would give us patience, and that we would indeed be patient but persistent learners of your word. We pray, O Lord, that you'd teach us now. We pray that we would listen. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As I mentioned, we have reached the final passage of First and Second Samuel. A passage in which David makes atonement, in a sense, for his sin, but ultimately for the sins of Israel by building an altar to the Lord. You'll remember, the anger of the Lord had been kindled against Israel for unspecified sins, and so David had been incited to conduct a census for which, immediately upon its completion, he came under conviction, saying in verse 10, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. 
And so we've seen that the immediate cause for the pestilence that came upon Israel was David's census, but that the pestilence in a larger sense was punishment for Israel's sins. David, in a sense, felt the conviction that belonged to Israel. And so he sought to make atonement for sin that belonged to Israel, but in a sense was put upon himself. Well, the Lord sent this pestilence upon Israel, and during the time that it was appointed to run its course, 70,000 men died. And when the angel of the Lord who had been bringing about the pestilence stretched his hand toward Jerusalem, Yahweh said, it is enough. He put a boundary there. And the angel of the Lord stopped in his destruction. Jerusalem had been on the brink of disaster. But God stayed the hand of the angel of the Lord at the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. David's intervention in verse 17, humanly speaking, is the reason why the Lord commanded the angel to stop where and when he did. As Dale Davis says, verse 17 is a flashback which reports David's cry prior to Yahweh's restraining order. Now, I called it David's intervention, but we could also call it his intercession on behalf of his people. David is finally acting like the shepherd king that he was called to be. Verse 17 says, Behold, I have sinned and I've done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And J.P. Fockelman, in his commentary on this passage, writes, David is now aware that he ought to have been a shepherd instead of a dictator who makes the fate of his subjects secondary to his need for power, having put them through the bureaucratic mincer. Finally, David gets what he is supposed to do as king. And that is, he's supposed to shepherd his people. And so David steps in. He claims the sin of his people as his own. He calls for the punishment that Israel is suffering to fall upon him and upon his household instead of Israel. And in response, the Lord tells David through the prophet Gad to build an altar on the very spot where the angel of the Lord stopped his destruction, the threshing floor of Arana, which is the site where Solomon would build the temple. As we work our way through this sermon, I would ask you to consider this thought. Just as Israel was under the curse of a plague, we were under the curse of eternal punishment in hell. But Jesus took our punishment on himself. Let me say it again. Just as Israel was under the curse of a plague, we were under the curse of eternal punishment in hell. But Jesus took our punishment on himself. The sermon has three points. The first is the threshing floor of Arana. The second, bought for a price. And the third, an offering pleasing to the Lord. Again, the threshing floor of Arana. That's the first point of the sermon. The second, bought for a price. And the third, an offering pleasing to the Lord. So let's look at this first point of the sermon. The threshing floor of Arana. On the same day that God commanded that the pestilence stop before Jerusalem was afflicted, Verse 18 says that Gad said to David, Go up, raise an altar to Yahweh on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Now it's telling that Gad, delivering to David the word of the Lord, told him to go up. David is in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the city on a hill. Jerusalem is the place to where everyone went up when they went there. 
But when Gad tells David to go up to Arana's threshing floor, it shows that the threshing floor is at a higher level than the city of David. Threshing floors were always at a location where wind consistently blew, and the tops of hills or mountains were prime candidates. For those of you who were with us when we went through the book of Ruth, or those who have studied the matter for yourselves, you already know that the sifting of wheat and other grains was done on a a threshing floor upon which the grain would land after being tossed into the air. The chaff, the husk, the stuff that you don't want with your grain, it's lighter and it would be blown away, but the grain itself would fall back down to the threshing floor, which in the case of Arana's threshing floor was solid stone. Now, I grew up about an hour's drive from Blowing Rock, North Carolina, where according to local legend, a Native American man threw himself over the cliff of Blowing Rock and into the gorge below when he found out that his tribe was going to battle with the tribe of the woman that he loved. But an updraft of wind set him back up and set him back down on his feet beside her. Now I can remember driving up through the mountains, seeing billboards on the interstate, and it would show, it was a billboard for Blowing Rock, and it would show these two young men and women, Indian uh, men and women, Native Americans, one from uh, the Cherokee tribe, the other from the the Catawba tribe, and the the, the man, or the young man, he was floating in the air, holding the woman's hand as the wind brought him back up. Well, that was only for about a decade or so. I think the marketing people decided maybe it's not such a good idea to market the idea. Folks can throw themselves over the cliff and be blown back up. But the fact is that the wind coming up from the gorge, it would blow uh, trash, paper, other things that would blow them up into the air. Well, the same idea is uh, present for threshing floors. And so this Legend, it illustrates the forces of winds that are blowing up over the tops of mountains or hills such as Arana's threshing floor. But Arana's threshing floor is significant, not just because it's higher up than the city of David, where David had established his city slightly down below the hill. It's significant because that's where the angel of the Lord stopped his destruction before he reached the city of Jerusalem. That's the place where David saw the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord was bringing judgment on the people from a place where the wheat was separated from the chaff. And this location, and some of you probably already know this, perhaps others, this is a revelation to you, this location was also known as Mount Moriah. The location where Abraham was commanded to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis chapter 22 verse 2. Verse 19 says that David went up at Gad's word. And when Arana looked down, as we read in verse 20, he saw the king and his servants coming toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. Now the old city of Jerusalem, which is more commonly known as the city of David because it was where David first settled when he established Jerusalem as the royal city, it was just down the mountain from Arana's threshing floor. And so Arana literally looked down as David was coming up to him. And when he arrived, Arana greeted David as one properly greets a king, and David made of him an unexpected request. And that brings us to the second point of the sermon, bought for a price. Verse 21 says that Arana asked David, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To which David responded, To buy the threshing floor from you, in order to build an altar to Yahweh, that the plague may be averted from the people. The destruction brought by the angel of the Lord had stopped, but as verse verse 18 makes clear, something more needed to be done. And David 
David's purchasing the uh, Arana's threshing floor would make that something more possible. David doesn't want merely to borrow the threshing floor from Arana as if it uh, could simply be returned to its former purpose after David built the altar to the Lord there and offered up sacrifice on it. And so David knows that he must buy it. And Arana, to his credit, offers to give the threshing floor to David in verses 22 and 23, as well as the oxen to sacrifice and their yokes to be used as firewood. But David won't accept the gift. He tells Arana in verse 24, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to Yahweh my my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Now, if you've read the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 21, you've noticed first that Ornan, the Jebusite, is said to have owned the threshing floor, not Arana. That is easily reconciled, those differences. In Hebrew, the names are actually pretty similar. They, they contain almost the same uh, consonants and a, a couple of different uh, vowels that are in there. This is probably just one variation of the same name. The other... Seemingly more problematic difference is that in 1 Chronicles 21, it says that David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold, not 50 shekels of silver, as we have it in 2 Samuel 24. That is a massive difference. But if you read the two passages in conjunction with one another, you'll see that they emphasize different things. 2 Samuel here is only concerned with David offering the sacrifice. This is the way that the destruction is brought to an end. This is the appointed means by which God stops the destruction of of Jerusalem. And so the focus is only on the threshing floor and the altar that would be built there. But in 1 Chronicles, the focus is actually on what will be built there later on. And so once David purchases the threshing floor... In First Chronicles, he begins offering regular sacrifices there instead of going to the tabernacle at Gibeon. And then David decides, in the very next chapter, chapter 22, he decides that the site of the altar on the threshing floor is where the temple ought to be built. And so that site, the site where the altar is, becomes the Holy of Holies in the temple. The rock, upon which the, rock, uh, the dome of the rock currently sits, it was up above the rest of the land. It's still something that were you able to go there, you could see the rock upon which the altar had been built. Scraped clean now, I assume, as probably it ought to be, because we don't want sacrifices being offered on the altar any longer. Jesus Christ has made sure of that. So the temple would require a great deal more space than the altar, so the 600 shekels of gold went toward the purchase of enough property on Mount Moriah for the temple and its grounds. And so most likely David made two separate purchases, one right after the other. The first for the threshing floor itself, and the second for the larger parcel of land. How many times have you done that? You go to the grocery store, you're buying one thing for your family and perhaps another thing for work or whatever, you use two different credit cards, two separate transactions. And in a sense... Not identical, but in a sense, that's what David very well may have been doing here. David knew that because he saw the angel of the Lord there on the threshing floor, and because that was the site where Abraham was told to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, that it had to be the place where the temple would be built. And it was worth a great price. And because David regarded himself as the reason for the plague and all of its destruction, because he saw his sin as being the cause of it all, he knew that atonement for it came at a price. 
He could not make the sacrifice to the Lord at no cost to himself. And given the great costs of previous sins that David had committed, the, 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 the price that he had paid for his own personal sins in the past, 50 shekels of silver and 600 shekels of gold was not a huge cost for him to bear. Now it's interesting, I've already mentioned this briefly at the very beginning, but it's interesting that 2 Samuel concludes with this passage on a high note, as it were, for David. David here finally sees himself in the role that God had created for him and him for, the role of the shepherd king. He is acting on behalf of his people as a type of Christ ought to act on behalf of his people. And that brings us to the third and the final point of the sermon this morning, an offering pleasing to the Lord. Verse 25 says, And David built there an altar to Yahweh and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings So Yahweh responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. As Dale Davis points out, though the angel of the Lord had stopped his destruction in verse 16, the situation was not resolved at the end of verse 16. The wrath was stayed, but not satisfied. The scourge ceases in verse 16, but the wrath behind the scourge must not merely be curtailed or on hold, but must be dealt with or theologically propitiated. Hence the altar and sacrifices of verse 25, and this is effected by atonement. David is making atonement for what he believes is his sin and his sin alone. We, the readers, know that Israel was guilty. But David has taken all of their sin upon himself in a sense, though probably unconsciously. He regards it all as his fault, what has happened to Israel. He's making atonement there for them. The angel of the Lord ceased his destruction in anticipation of the sacrifices that David would offer to God. But David's sacrifices themselves were an anticipation of the once for all time sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so it's anticipation anticipating something else. The angel of the Lord stops. He's anticipating David's sacrifice. David's sacrifice anticipates Jesus Christ coming as the perfect spotless lamb. And the fact that David continued to offer sacrifices at the altar that he built, and that later on, where the temple would be built, showed both the efficacy of the Old Testament sacrificial system, but also its deficiency. And so 1 Chronicles 21-22, it says that David, he offered up sacrifices there, even after this destruction had been averted. This shows both the efficacy of it, that these sacrifices were effective to a certain degree. But it also shows their deficiency. They were efficacious inasmuch as they pointed forward to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ and inasmuch as those who offered them had faith in the promises of God. But their deficiency was highlighted by the fact that they had to be offered again and again, repeatedly. The priests had to offer sacrifices every single day for themselves and for the people. The mere blood of bulls and goats cannot take away the stench and stain of sin. The sacrifices that David offered and that the priests offered in the temple foreshadowed the sacrifice of the Lord. David and the priests themselves foreshadowed Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest. Now, Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah, David's own tribe. 
He was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. David was a shadow of this type of priest, but Jesus was and is its fulfillment. David as shadow, David as type, he can offer up sacrifices on the altar, but only in that capacity. Jesus Christ is the true priest after the order of Melchizedek. God set up the tribe of Levi as the tribe of the priests because there needed to be a succession of priests, as Hebrews 7.23 says. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus needs no successor. Verses 24 and 25 continue the thought, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And Hebrews 7 goes on to say that Jesus is a high priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. David, though offering a sacrifice for the sins of the people of Israel, was at the same time offering a sacrifice for his own sins. But Jesus made no such sacrifice for his own sins. Jesus never committed a sin for which a sacrifice needed to be made. However... Your sins, my sins, became his sins. On the cross, he took them upon himself. In the eyes of God, the Father, it was as if he had committed all of those sins that we committed. Contemplate that for a little while. And because our sins were reckoned as the sins of Jesus, he suffered in our place. He was punished for our transgressions. He paid the price that we were supposed to pay. Though what David did was right and good, and the Lord honored his sacrifices that day on the threshing floor of Arana, it was a feeble foreshadowing of what Jesus would do a thousand years later. And two thousand years later, what Jesus did on that hill far away still stands. It has never had to be repeated. It is finished. And your salvation, my salvation, our salvation is secure. Because of what he did. And that, brothers and sisters, is the good news of the gospel. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are indeed thankful for what Christ our Lord has done for us. We are thankful for his life and for his death and for his resurrection. We are thankful, Lord, that he has ascended on high and still today he makes intercession for us. He ever pleads for me. Lord, we are grateful for Jesus, our high priest. We're thankful for our father in the faith, David, who is so, so like us in so many ways that we would rather not even acknowledge. Lord, he is, in a sense, the Peter of the Old Testament. And we're thankful for this full account that we get of his life, but we are grateful for the way in which you chose to end 2 Samuel on this high note. Where David is functioning fully as your shepherd king, where he presents a true picture of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the shepherd king who is to come. But we are grateful for his work. David's work is a type and a shadow of Christ. We are thankful that you anointed him as your king. 
We are grateful, dear Lord, that you, that you redeemed him. But ultimately, Christ Jesus is the one who made atonement for his sins. But we pray that you would remind us that Jesus Christ has made atonement for our sins. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us that his work is complete, which means our salvation is secure. We pray, Lord, that though we are grieved in various ways for a time, with trials, with sufferings, we pray, Lord, that you would use those trials as the refiner's fire to purify us, to make us more and more like our Savior. We pray, dear Lord, that you would make us fit for heaven while we are still here on earth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.